Hey everyone, it's Mason. I have a pretty exciting announcement. After we were done recording this episode, me and Trey had a conversation about the podcast, and we decided to move the podcast to be a weekly show. So that means every single week you can expect a new episode of the Even Odds podcast to roll onto your iTunes feed. So what does that mean for you, the listeners? It just means more episodes of Even Odds podcast coming to you. Thank you everyone for your feedback and your support so far. It means a lot to us, and we can't wait to roll with you in more episodes. Now, hit that music. You're listening to the Even Odds Podcast on the Constructive Criticism Network. Here are your hosts, Mason and Trey, and thank you for rolling with us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the fifth episode of the Even Odds Podcast. I'm your host, Mason. And I'm joined by my trusty sidekick, Trey McLaren. <laughs> how dare you? <laughs> Trey, how you doing? <laughs> oh, great, man. Uh, I was convinced that I would have quit by now. Um, and now with the sidekick thing, I'm reevaluating. <laughs> yeah, do you remember when we started this podcast? And originally we were like, oh, we'll give it like two or three episodes and see where it goes. And now we have 25 episodes pre-canned. Yeah, I didn't imagine the stardom. Yeah, <laughs> the dozens and dozens of dozens of mentions. <laughs> the, the literal tens of people that are listening. <laughs> well, all right. So uh, before we get started on today's episode, we are going to talk standard. We know we've been talking, we're promising you standard a lot, a lot of standard talk going to happen. But first, Trey wanted me to talk a little bit about what we've been doing in Magic recently. We figure, you know, we can make a quick little thing about it. Trey, what did you be doing in Magic recently? Uh, playing a lot of arena, honestly. I haven't been able to go to a lot of events recently because of uh, my work schedule. I was at a film festival and I was traveling. And uh, and so I've been grinding drafts on arena and it's a lot of fun. Yeah, arena's great. I, I play it a lot. It's to the point where I'm almost going to cancel my Man Traders account. Uh, I have been playing a lot of events. So I went to GP Atlanta and I went 10-5. So good enough for a pro point. You know, trying to hit bronze, so that's something. You know, got the good part was I got to play against a lot of pros, and I got a lot of practice with the RPDQ. And then I played uh, SCG Regionals just two days ago, and I went X four. I, I missed I missed cash in the last round essentially. Yeah. So didn't you play a prominent Japanese player at the uh, at the Grand Prix? Uh, I think I did, and now under the moment, I I know I did, but I'm forgetting his name. Tomohara Saito had to no. Yeah. Oh, okay, you looked. Yeah. So, it, 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 Trey gave me a look where it was like, uh, that's wrong. Kind of, <laughs> and I was like, oh, did I mess his name up? Oh, God. Uh, no, so, yeah, I'm really bad with names. So, yeah, I got to play against Saito. I got to play against Marcio. I got to play against AJ. I got to play against Mateo. I got to play a lot of great games. My game with Mateo playing Dredge, I think, inspired an episode of the podcast probably down the road. It's one I'm trying to get my thoughts into, but I've thought about that game every day for the last two weeks. And things about that game, so I think there's going to be something coming from that. Just like you could easily do an episode on the Kai versus Seth game. Oh, kind of yeah. felt like that to me, so. Uh, how did your uh, match with Saito end up? Uh, I beat him 2-0, and then we talked a little bit, and you're wanting me to say that he complimented me at the end of the match, I'm No, assuming. I'm assuming that you wanted to say that. No, I, didn't, I in fact, didn't <laughs> no. want to say that. No, I just wanted to say that what your result was. It's always good. You know, I know that that's one of the things that you've talked about on the podcast, is wanting to play against the best players mm-hmm. and wanting to be put into that situation. But, you know, the winning is not the goal, but it's also good to know that, like, not only wanting to do that, but that you can hang in that arena. Yeah. Yeah, it's nice. Like, I know my games against Marcio are very close. My games against AJ, I believe he said, he said his name was Shader. 
Is that how you say uh, that? Uh, uh, AJ Sacker. Sa- I don't know why I say that wrong every time. The CH, that's not how it works in English. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but uh, the game against him was uh, not particularly close. But it was, it was a good, you know, learning moment for playing against the Phoenix and stuff. And my game against Mateo was actually just insane. It was a great. It involved like some crazy stuff with Dredge. Maybe one day we'll talk about it. But like some weird things had to happen, and we both. It was just a good game. I right, know, and so. it's one of those things that I, I want to do too. That like I didn't bring this up, or, or you know, want you to talk about it just from like an ego stroke thing or anything else like that. But it, it's for our listeners and for everything else. It's a mistake that I see a lot of people make that when they play against a good player, particularly a player who has a reputation like a Saito or a Marcio, like you know, these are top tier, top level competitors. They go into it with a lot of nerves, or they feel like they're some kind of an imposter that they're not supposed to be there. And that you're not someone who's been playing competitively for very long, but to be able to go into those matches, be excited to play good magic and come away with a win is something that I think should be celebrated, because I think it's a mistake that a lot of players make. Yeah. I will say this, and then we get off it, is going into the last round, I was very happy and upset because I just got to play against Carver. I'm sorry. So it was, I played Marcio two rounds before Saito. And then I actually played against a guy that's local to Alabama that I knew in passing I got to meet. And I was like, man, it was like, great. I got to play against all these pros. But like, you don't really get to play against pros when you get to the X4 range because for a lot of them, they just kind of like already drop, mm-hmm. right? I'm sorry, the X5. I was already X5. So I was, I was winning to make sure I got at least a pro point. A lot of them drop if they don't need the pro point. Right. So when I played against Saito, he asked, like, I asked him like, do you need the pro point because I need it for bronze? And then he was like, I also need the pro point. So it was a thing where I got to play against a pro who actually needed the point and everything. So it was it was good. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's a great experience. Yeah. It was nice. It, it was something where I like, was actually actively complaining out loud that I won't get to play against a pro in the last round. Which, if you know me when I go to GPs, I'm basically saying, like, I want to play against this person there in my bracket. And I thought I wasn't going to get to and I got to, which is pretty cool. It was actually uh, a pro to my right as well. So if I was one table over, I also got to play against them because they needed the pro point. Another uh, how to do a pro. But... Let's hop right into our sponsor for this week's episode. This week, you know, we had Goblin Charbargains come in and sponsor the show, and we got a lot of great feedback for them. We saw y'all went out and used our promo code, don't force me, bro. We see it at checkout. And, you know, a, a new sponsor approached us, and they paid a lot. And honestly, this was the sponsor I kind of wanted when we went into the podcast, and so I was very excited to get them. So, Trey, will you read our ad from Ultraplate? Hello, fellow Magic competitor. Are you tired of being embarrassed at your hosted dinner parties? When your significant other friend looks at you displeased when you serve food on your folding card table next to stacks and stacks of unsorted cards that, I mean, you really meant to put away but just couldn't get to because of all of the sweet, sweet deck building, well, we have the perfect fix for you. Distract their gaze with a decorative charger. It's a plate for your plate. No longer will your dinner presentation be boring and forgettable. Instead, you'll wow your guests with decorative chargers. And if you want to be the envy of all of your friends, you can charging monstrous soar to new heights of fancy with the supercharger. It's a plate for your plate for your plate. Call now. Orders are literally falling off the shelves. Yeah, we're really glad to have Ultra Plate as our sponsor. And uh, let's move right into Standard because a lot happened. We just had a Standard Pro Tour. We said we were going to be talking about Standard Tray for a while now, but we just couldn't do it because the Pro Tour. The Pro Tour has happened. Wow. Let's talk about that top 16 and let's kind of talk about what we do know about it because we had a hard time finding the exact deck list for top 16, but what from what I gathered from Twitter and looking online is that basically 
the way things broke, uh, it was going to be like green-black top eight or like red-white top eight. And red-white kind of prevailed. And red-white kind of had its coming out this weekend. So what did you think about the Pro Tour and the metagame? And we're going to go over a lot of stuff today. Yeah, so one of the things I want to say, too, is that this Pro Tour, I, I found to be a lot of fun to watch. Like, I really enjoyed the coverage. I really had a good time watching it. I thought there were a lot of interesting decks. You know, I'm sure that Watsi's is uh, not happy with the way that it broke a little bit because I think that this is a very diverse and interesting standard. And then you had six white decks in, in the top eight. But one of the things I think that's important to keep in mind when looking at evaluating this is how much limited records play into how the top eights work out. And that um, just because you have all of these decks show up as the top eight decks, that doesn't mean that they dominated the standard portions of the rounds. It just means that those players also dominated at limited. Uh, you know, for example, LSV talked about Channel Fireball. They won 81% of their limited matches and 44% of their constructed matches. And he top eighted the event, but that doesn't necessarily mean that Red White is as dominant as it appeared to be. Yeah. That being said, Red White was as dominant as it appeared to be. <laughs> it was very good. <laughs> yeah. I imagine that would be a common thing in the episode. You know, it's like we're going to talk about uh, a deck not always performing, like how it appears to be because of limited, but. We had some numbers run for us by Spencer for Constructive Criticism, our producer, and I was going to talk about them real quick here. So, 17.4% uh, of the metagame day two was red-white with a 69.1 conversion rate from red-white and a 75 conversion rate from uh, white weenie from day one. So, I mean, 75% of people who showed up with white weenie converted to day two, which is like Eldrazi winter almost numbers. And what's interesting to note about this is... This isn't a deck that surprised people like Eldrazi Winter. This is a known deck, so I'm sure we're going to talk about that a little bit more later. 22% of the day two metagame was green-black with a 62.8 conversion rate. So if you played green-black, 62% of you converted, basically. Is it Drake's was 14% of the metagame with also a 68.2% conversion rate, which is a little bit better. Very high. Of course, less percent of the people are playing it, but that's what happens. Uh, Mono Red had a 13.4% of the metagame day two with a 67% conversion rate. Makes sense with the, some of the decks you talked about. And then Just Got of Control with 9.9 of the meta day, the metagame day two conversion rate with 57% of the decks converting from day one with only 17 decks there, which is right on par with all the other decks except green, black, and white, which I should mention. So Red and Red got had 64 decks, 21 decks. I'm sorry, I misspoke there. 21 decks. Is it had 20 and Just Guy had 17. Uh, Green Black had 38 and wet, uh, White, Red, and White Weenie Aggro had 35% of the decks. Yeah. Which and, is all, or 35 decks, which is a lot. And I mean, the thing that's crazy about that is that you just talked about five decks mm -hmm. that all had a conversion rate of over 60%. Yeah. I mean, that's a diverse metagame. Mm -hmm. and, and that's something that's really interesting. And I think that's been missing from Standard in recent times. You know, how many times have we had recently a, a two decks metagame? No, you've got this choice or this choice. You know, and that's it. And there's not really anything else that's really viable. Um, it's like you can play red, black, or red, black. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, you know, you can play cat or Mardu. <laughs> right. Like, there just aren't, there weren't those many things. Um, this doesn't even take into account some of the other things that happened at this. I mean, one of the, the best performing decks of the standard tournament at all at the Pro Tour was Mono Blue Tempo. Mm. 10 owed the event, they won every standard match they played. Their limited record was 1 5, so they didn't have a good result overall. But, like, that's a deck that's not even on the list of the top decks. And that's still 10 owed the event. Mm -hmm. And then the thing that's also really interesting to me about these lists is that there's some wide variety of card choices among those archetypes. Like, we group them together. Like, is it Drake's? But, like, there was an is it Drake list that 10 owed that had Star of Extinctions in it mm -hmm. and was playing, like, a much more controlling build. 
and then versus the aggro builds and even the ones that were doing well there was wide disparity between them and the green black lists they can't even agree on what mana accelerant to play or in what numbers like the things are all over the place yeah so like you know that's a good example so like matt nass played four elves and like a pretty interesting sideboard plan and got i think 11th or 10th at the pt so an amazing showing autumn burchett also had an amazing showing at 19th with no elves in the deck and playing three adventures impulses their one drop play so it really shows that like even within this archetype like that one archetype there's a lot you can do and of course if you've been listening to standard content green black's super customizable but like we just said the red deck not alone the, the red white decks in top six like the entire top eight all the red-white decks were different between a couple cards. Like, LSV had a Johnny's Pride Mate, one had Aurelia's, one had, um, I forget the card's name of it, but the, uh, the Rusty Boy, the 1-2 Hawk. Like, oh, yeah, uh, the Rustwing. Rustwing, yeah, the yeah, yeah. Rusty Boy. Old Rusty. Yeah, faithful. yeah, Rusty Boy's good. Yeah, R- Rusty Boy, you know. Like, all those cards, there's so much you can do with even within the archetypes themselves. You know, we're not even talking about, like, the cards Jeskai chose to play. We're not even talking about the Drakes that were chosen to play by um, Yuya Watanabe. So, there was a lot going on there. Rustwing Falcon was the card. That's Rusty Boy. One-two flyer for one man. <laughs> there you go. A little inside, a uh, little lingo there. Yeah, so, I mean, there are a lot of different things going on with those decks. And it, it's super customizable, and there's a lot you can do. And the thing I think is most telling is, this is just a healthy metagame where there's probably not a consensus best deck. Because not even all the decks played Heroic Reinforcement, which some people are saying is that's why you play the red deck. The red-white deck. Right, yeah, absolutely. And and the fact that you had this many teams working on these decks and they didn't come to a consensus as to what the best deck is or even what the best build of the best deck is. I mean, there are plenty of times that there's always going to be people playing different strategies. But normally it's like, well, this is the way you build the red-black deck. This is the way you build the vehicles deck. This is the, you know, like, there's a there's a consensus among the community as to the way that this is done. But every archetype was that way. Like, you know, you had the Selesnia Tokens deck, and then you had the Selesnia Midrange deck from uh, Seth Manfield. Like, like mm-hmm. they just everybody was all over the place because I think you can play all of these things. It's not because I think they were making bad decisions. I think they're all viable. And that this standard just has a lot of room and a lot of tools and a lot of opportunity to attack it. I mean, there are staples, you know, which we can look at. You know, I mean, History of Banalia was clearly, like, everywhere. I mean, it's the Siege Rhino, as they said on coverage many times of this format. That's a narrative. I know. But, like, (laughs) that's a thing that they definitely kept saying, kept saying, kept saying. But it's just that it's a game that in multiples just takes the game over. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, and it, it becomes that the entire game gets shaped around that card. Uh, and so there were things that certainly happened, like that Drake's another card, like it's kind of a coming out party for Drake as far as the, you know, big tournament showings and things like that. Um, but it, it was just a really interesting pro tour. And it's really interesting to think that like there's still room to experiment and play around with now. Like yeah. it's not, you know, you come out of a pro tour a lot of the time. It's like, okay, well, this is what we're going to be dealing with going forward. And I don't know that that's where we are. That's interesting. I think... Everything you said is I agree with except until the end, where I think where we are now is how do we beat red-white consistently? Because the thing that's interesting to me is, so if you listen to the game podcast, which if you listen to us and you don't listen to game podcasts, oh boy, you're doing it wrong. Uh, so uh, the game podcast, they even mention like everyone knows about this red-white deck and we can't beat it. Like I can't figure out a way to beat it. Now, obviously when more eyes are on it, right, and like all the pros are actually willing to communicate with each other, things might turn more quickly, right? We're able to churn that butter. But... Currently, like, we need to figure out a way to beat red-white consistently. Now, there are decks that are doing it, and there are definitely cards you can play to help beat those strategies. But the problem is with the metagames this open, 
how do you adapt to that? And I guess we'll talk about that here in just a little bit. But I think where you're at right now is how do I beat red white? Because that's like clearly in my mind the best deck. Like not even just on the conversion rate, just the fact that it was so known and being targeted by so many people. Like if you read Jadeen's article that came out today, her and Autumn worked very hard on like finding the best green black deck. And then they kind of tried to figure out how to beat red white, but they basically gave up. They were like, well, and they were talking about the version was Takali Honor Guard. They're like, well, we can't beat Takali Honor Guard, so we're just not going to even try. Mm-hmm. So when, think, when people are doing stuff like that against your deck, that's a pretty exciting spot to be in. But let's talk about how this relates to people at the PBDQ level. Because you just saw the Pro Tour happen, and you're a PBDQ grinder, and you're like, what do I do now? What deck do I play? What should I be doing? How should I be attacking things? There's a lot going on. So Trey, do you want to talk about the difference between the PT meta and the PBDQ meta? Sure. Uh, you know, PTQ meta is... The, the the PT meta is always going to be that, you know, they're trying to push the envelope as much as they can in order to try to, to find decks that are going to win the tournament. And the PBTQs are trying to do a, a similar type of thing, but they don't have access to the same kind of resources uh, a lot of the times. And metagames get skewed on a PBTQ level because it's a local metagame. And, and that's something that doesn't happen as much on the PT, is that, you know, you have these little pods of people who are making decks on the PT, and they may come to similar conclusions, but they may not as we saw with the, you know, green-blue improvised deck, right? Like, teams are going to try to push the envelope and do different things. And so you can get weird things that happen at the PT. Um, At the PPTQ, people are going to try to make, a lot of the time, safe choices. Except you're always going to have that group of people who are going to go who have their pet decks that they're going to play. And so the the localness of a PPTQ really shapes the metagame. Um, Also, there's a difference, too, that, honestly, PPTQ deck builders, a lot of the times, aren't very confident. And they overreact to tournaments that happen. And so if you have something that happens like the PT or you have a Grand Prix or even an SCG event where a deck top eights or in a large number or wins the event, your metagame is going to overreact to that on a local level, um, even if people have been playing something else. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that could happen with this. You have The narrative is you have six white decks in the top eight, six white decks in the top eight, six white decks on the top eight. I think you're going to see a lot of that at your local PPTQs. People are going to be like, well, I have to play red-white because that's the only deck that you can play. It dominated in an Eldrazi-type fashion. And I don't know that that's necessarily true. Hmm, this is interesting. Because I was... This maybe Maybe we should talk more about where we're going with the episodes. But this is a pretty good generic conversation, like a healthy conversation that's inscripted. I think a lot of times people try to attack those decks at the PPTQ level. So I, I think... What, I think only two things happen. Where you said like a lot of people will just play red or white weaning, right, and attack like like play that deck. I think people either do that or they try to beat it. And there's never like any real middle ground, right? Like, I think that that's fair. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I think that that's reasonable. Um, but yeah. I think more people try to attack it. Like I think people don't want to have a target on their back. People do overreact to that. I think. I think people fear that more than they should, mm-hmm. being the known quantity. But then I also see it. I mean, like it happened. You know, it happened here locally when the Drake deck happened. Mm-hmm. Like, the Drake deck happened and it started posting results. And then, like, I went to a 13-person PPTQ that had, like, five Drake decks at it. Like, mm-hmm. an obscene showing there for people that picked the deck up, like, the day before. That's the thing, too, that I see where people will pick up decks as a reaction to an event, and test none, and then be like, well, I'm going to play this because this is the best deck. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's also a, a problem, but it's, it happens over and over and over again. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I think people definitely pick up decks and just play them. I think 
I think the biggest thing is people at the PPDQ level just don't test enough. Yeah. That's like that's a whole episode. But like, <laughs> yeah. you know, like we kind of did one on it, but like you know, they just they aren't testing. Like I, I'm curious how Arena will affect that because it makes it so much easier to play Magic and so much easier to play Standard. Right. I'm curious about that. But that's a you know something to talk about another time maybe. But yeah, and another thing that affects the PPTQ meta that doesn't really affect the PTQ meta is card availability. Mm-hmm. Like. You know, it. I don't know how many times like we go to an event or something else that happens at an event, and someone's like, "I wanted to play X, but I couldn't build it, and I have the cards. I couldn't get the cards. The LGS doesn't have the cards. Whatever the deal is, right? Like I just couldn't get it together. So I'm playing a deck from two weeks ago because I couldn't get the cards together. And I think that's something that also happens that the, at a PT is something that's never going to occur. Mm-hmm. You know, no one's no one's playing a deck choice on. You know, if someone goes, why'd you play Star of Extinction? It's like, ah, I had him. <laughs> you know? That's fair. Like, yeah. that's not a thing. But that's a thing that happens at a PPTQ level. Or it'll be like, well, I was going to play Drake, but then, you know, Steve wanted to play Drake, so I gave Steve the Drake deck, and now I'm playing whatever we had left over. Mm-hmm. Like, whatever your group had, you know. Uh, so you can't end up with a weird mix. Yeah. So we kind of, you know, we talked big picture about a lot of things, but let's try and hone down and really talk about some stuff. So let's let's talk about avoiding the target on your back. Right, so you kind of talked about how you thought um, that people overreact for that a lot, right? Where they don't want to play red white because they're afraid people will be attacking red white. Mm-hmm. What are some of your opinions on that? Because I know personally that unless a deck's truly busted, like Team or Energy or Four Color Cat, I don't really want to be attacking that because I don't want people to have extra cyborg cards. Because what I see happen a lot is is that a deck like red white wins, and even if the cards aren't great and they're just like middling answers, people are like. I'm packing that extra ritual set this weekend, not losing to red white. Right. So, what do you think about that kind of stuff? You know, I think it depends on what the deck is mm-hmm. of of how effective there are sideboard cards are that can hate it, because otherwise, what you get is somebody's like, oh, I'm going to get them with these extra cards. And and you're right, this is a thing that happens all the time. Um, but I also see it where they have extra cards that aren't aren't good in the matchup, and all they're doing is making their deck worse. That's fair. Like a fundamental misunderstanding of like what matters in this matchup. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Something that happens a lot. I mean, you and I have both had it where we're after a match and somebody's like, uh, I wasn't going to lose to you. I packed these extra cards for you, and then they show them to you, and you're like, those cards don't do anything <laughs> Like in the matchup. Like, I don't understand, like... And I'm not being critical too much, but like I, I like fundamentally don't understand what the plan is. Yeah, like you brought in Pithing Needle on playing Spirits. Right, <laughs> like it doesn't do anything. <laughs> like, I guess my vials are hit. All right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that, I think that that is something that people try to do, but I don't know that they always do it well. And I think it circles back to that to that problem. Mm-hmm. Um, do, so do you find yourself packing extra hate? So like let's say let's say we could still play PPTQs right now, and we were going to play one this Saturday. Do you think you'd have an extra cyborg card for red white? I might lean towards more. Um, you know, it would affect the number of sweepers that I would play. Mm-hmm. You know, like if I were trying to determine like how much spot removal I want versus how much sweepers that I want. Like I think that it would certainly like skew that number, but I wouldn't want to fundamentally change what the deck is doing. Okay, because uh, I'd be playing Drake because. Deck's great. <laughs> um, mm, selling that car wax. Yeah, yeah, whatever. The, the deck feels like cheating. So, I, I mean, we're, we're going to talk about this here in yeah. a little bit about what decks you want to play. So, I'm just going to save yeah, yeah, that, we'll... that for now. I, I am someone who played a lot of Drake and I'm not a believer anymore. So, I'm ready to talk about that hotline bling. But before we go on to that, I do want to talk about uh, overcorrecting. Because we kind of alluded to it there with the extra sideboard cards and, you know, doing it too much. Do you think... 
that it's smart to not even smart, but do you think it's right at times to overcorrect on your sideboard? Like, so let's say you do have a card that matters a lot. So let, let's take, for example, um, let's just say Golden Demise. Golden Demise is a pretty great card against the white decks. The problem with Benelish Marshall, but if you're playing Golden Demise, you probably have some spot removal for that. So do you do you think it's normally correct to have like the extra Golden Demise? It's like, well, I wouldn't normally play three Golden Demises, but Red White just did so well. And this other card's kind of meh in these a lot of matchups. So I'm going to play this, this one card that's much more of a lights out. Yeah, I think that that's a reasonable choice. If you have a card that's like that, that's actually impactful in the match, that's something that's good to do, then I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think you can go too far. You know, you're talking about playing a golden demise. I'm talking about playing the third over the Right, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, two. you know, uh, I see people that might play like, well, I'm playing, you know, uh, four fiery cannonades, two star of extinction, like, you know, like whatever. You literally like, describe my deck at me next time. Right, yeah, I know. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like, like I think that you can go go to an extreme, mm-hmm. right? Um, but like one more sweeper, I think that's just acknowledging the information that you have that you didn't have a week before, possibly at times. Okay. And that may not be true every week, right? Like this week, that might be a reasonable choice because there were six red-white decks in the top eight and people I think are maybe going to overreact to that. And so I'm going to pack an extra sweeper for this week. But you have to then also reevaluate what happened at your local metagame at that tournament. Like, were you right? Right? Did that show up in the ways that you thought it was going to show up? If not, then you have to readjust again for the next PPTQ, possibly even the next day. You know, sometimes there's a Saturday one and a Sunday one. And so you have to continue to use that information and reevaluate. That makes a lot of sense. Is that yawn? Uh, okay, that's cool. Well, I'm sorry I've bored you with my sideboard discussion. No, you're good. I've had a very long with my, day. Bored you with my board discussion. I'm just going to be quiet, so I have a good way to edit that all out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what decks do we expect to see in high-volume post-PT? Now, this is one where we get to really kind of talk about the decks themselves and what we think about them. So let's start off, right? The number one when we have listed is Blue Red Drake, and I put a question mark next to it. Yeah, the only reason that, I mean, this is particularly a conversation, I think, for the for the local Nashville PPTQ metagame when I'm talking about Blue Red Drake, because that was a deck that was very popular here mm-hmm. beforehand, um, because it's one with a couple of, uh, you know, PPTQ in-bosses. <laughs> oh, wow. And uh, <laughs> um, Smart, thin, and handsome, I bet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but... But I'm just saying that's a deck that I think has already been played at a higher number here than it is that we're seeing overall in a general meta game, mm-hmm. um, and that there were plenty of things to see at the Pro Tour that would reinforce that as being a good decision, mm-hmm. right? And so if it's a deck you already like, there's already a a bias towards that as being a deck that people seem to be enjoying playing here or that they think is good, then I could see that continuing to show up in large numbers here. Okay, but I, I want to kind of talk more on the whole. Right. I don't want to talk locally in Nashville. No, I think no. that's not helpful to people. But I, it's important, you know, have your decision, like your stance, be explained from earlier. So Blue Red Drake's on whole, though, I think is a deck that is fine and is like pretty decent against Green Black and is like pretty decent against Red. But like it does not do well against the Dante's Vanguard. So what do you think about that card? I mean, like that—that that was the reason that like you didn't play that deck was like you have a problem with these cards. And it's not, a, it's not one that we have found a solution to either. No, Adanto's Vanguard is certainly a problem. Um, I, I do think that the uh, adoption of Enigma Drake in the lists is is a concession towards that in a lot For of sure. extents. Because it just gives you more four toughness creatures that you can then use to, to engage in combat successfully. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, you can kill Benelish Marshals, you can kill other things that are pump effects. And then you, if you have these four 
toughness things, then you can interact successfully in combat. I think that that's the right direction for the deck. But yeah, I mean, red doesn't have really good answers to that. Um, I did really like uh, Yuya Watanabe's uh, tech uh, for that exact problem by playing Entrancing Melody. Which oh, I, I thought, oh, okay. I thought that was clever, uh, you know. Um, whether or not it's good, I don't know, but it is, it is at least trying to address the problem. Yeah, it's trying. My problem with the transimility is the answer to Adantos is four mana. Yeah, and that's a lot of mana. I, I almost wondered if it was for the mirrors. Well, I mean, it's also good there. Yeah, it's also good there, but uh, you know, but I think that's where you get into like if you can play Enigma Drake on three, block an attack, you know, use a spot removal or something else early to stem the bleeding, block an Adantos Vanguard, and take it. You're in pretty good shape. Um, now that's a lot of things lining up that may not be there, but like Adanto's Vanguard's clearly a problem, uh, and card that's very good against the Drake deck and the black green deck and <laughs> everything. Yeah. As someone who really liked the, the Drake deck at the start of the format, I mean, we were playing it basically week two. Uh, I think there's a lot of things going against it and we're gonna talk about it more where the metagame is like kind of rewarding spot removal and it's lining up pretty well against the Drakes, which is making it harder and making you have to lead on maximize velocity more. Which is not a place that I particularly like to be. It doesn't mean that it's wrong. Mm-hmm. It's just a place that makes me want to move off it. So yeah. I think that's where a lot of my hesitation about you selling this blue red car wax uh-huh. is coming from. Yeah, but I think that there's also you know there's also possibilities of pushing the deck. I've seen some lists that are pushing towards Jeskai as well to play Deafening Clarion um, because you can get the benefit in that deck of the both so, sides. Like the you know if you gain ten life off of a Drake swing, like you're probably not going to lose the game. Yeah. You know, at any time. If you sweeped up a bunch of stuff and then gain a bunch of life, like, you know, I don't know whether or not that's the right answer or anything else, but, you know, I'm still intrigued by the deck because it it does so many explosive things. I mean, the number of times that you're like, survive, 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 your opponent's at 18, 17, 20, whatever. We saw it in the top eight with Watanabe. That's right. Just kill him. Yeah. Right? Um, It requires tight technical play and it requires some things to go your way, but like, a deck that has that kind of power level is just the type of thing that I'm interested in doing. Sure, that's fair. And a lot of really great players brought that deck to the, the tournament. So right. definitely not saying it's a terrible choice. It's just one I'm not interested in. Let's talk about red-white real quick. Holy moly, there are so many red-white archetypes we could talk about. We can talk about the ones that LSV played that play Primate. We can talk about the ones with Heroic Reinforcement. We can talk about the ones that are like Aurelia decks. We can talk about what I think is the worst deck in Standard and Boros Angels. Like... <laughs> Brad what? Nelson might have words for you on that. Sure, but Brad Nelson... So, here's the thing. I think Takali Honor Guard's what made that good. It's right. like, you play Takali Honor Guard, and they're like, uh, can't do anything. And then you, like, play all these big threats, and you're like, can't do anything, kid, and you hit them. Right. Right? But, like, I don't think Brad played that deck... He didn't play, like, Takali Honor Guards in the PT, did he? He, like, moved on. Right, yeah. So, yeah, like... He, he had a one-week got him, and... Yeah, he was very happy, and I'm sure he would have ran it back at that same tournament. In fact, I know he said he'd ran it back. He talked about him versus live. But yeah. I think that the big red-white decks have the same problems that kind of like the Drake deck does, where people are trying to attack creatures right now. Yes. And you kind of get stuck, and, like, they kind of can't handle that. We kind of saw that with Ely Cassis when he won that GP a while back. Like, well, two weeks ago, I guess, now. It's crazy. <laughs> Forever. Time flies, yeah. Because of all those red-white decks. Um... But let's let's talk about the, the particularly the small ones, the like lower to the ground mm-hmm. ones. I think those are the better ones. I think pretty much everyone's kind of come to that consensus as of right now. Much like the Scarab God's unplayable, we talk about things in the moment. So um, red white right now, I think is a really strong deck. It's very proactive. I played it a good amount on Arena personally. I haven't played it, haven't played with it on Magic Online just yet, but it's a proactive deck that like its draws kind of just all come together and it just really beats down people. 
And it, like, is pretty good at playing through hate. Like, I have beat a lot of turn three Clarions by Jeskai, and it's like, whatever, rebuild. Like, didn't even have an Adantos to live through it. Right. So. Yeah, and the number of things that you can do with Adantos and Dauntless Bodyguards, a, a card that can't be overstated of the importance in that deck. Like, okay, if they sweep you, and then they take five... Yeah, the next turn because you had a Dantos or a bodyguard on something else or anything like that. Like that's a beating. Like that's just horrendous. And it's not, you know, it's very similar. Like you know, I played a mono white deck that was very similar to these decks week one mm-hmm. uh, of the standard, and like it kills you fast, like very fast, and it's resilient, like you said. And I think that uh, I like the uh, Johnny's Pride mate build version i think that's an interesting card of like a nod to the mirror yeah it's very much like a like a pt style move where if you think your metagame is gonna like if your metagame you know is really moving towards red white i think lsv stack with an extra settle is like the best deck for the weekend yeah it's not not even close because it's just so it's so well built for the mirror it kind of shows you like how good those guys are at playing the pro tour metagames and succeeding at succeeding at them because they knew this is gonna be the best deck like it, i mean lsv almost kind of took a gamble where it's like I don't think people can beat this deck if they try, at least with the time we've had. So instead, I'm going to beat them by being them, almost, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, they're going to play, you know, a Rustwing Falcon, and I'm going to play a two-mana 6-6. Six, six. Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, that's a pretty powerful that's a pretty powerful game plan. For sure. So would you... I, and I'll say this. I think the red-white deck's the deck... I said it earlier. It's the deck to beat. It's probably what the deck I'd play. I, I think it's the deck to beat, and, and you know... While I personally play Drake, it, it's more of a choice of I like what the Drake deck is doing. It's not necessarily a choice that I think it's more powerful. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I said, having played a deck that was very similar to, to these, both decks, these decks, to both of these decks, this deck is very good and it's fun to play. That's mm-hmm. another thing too. But I do want to say that this is not the type of deck. It seems silly to just be like, this is just a, a white weenie deck. This is a, a you know. Uh, nothing thought deck you can just pick it up and go and i don't need to test it that is going to be a mistake like there are a lot of different kinds of sweepers there's a lot of different ways that this deck can be interacted with and sequencing is something with a deck like this that matters a lot mm-hmm. like you can lose a game six turns later because you played the wrong one drop on turn one or the wrong two drop or didn't play two one drops when you should have played a two drop or mm-hmm. like all of those sequencing decisions in this type of a deck are really important. Yeah, I had that happen on my stream at twitch.tv slash Clark, where I had a opening hand that was three one-drops. It was the the Cat Lean in Vanguard, I believe was its name. Mm-hmm. Uh, Adanto's the landing thing. And then I had the 2-1 with City's Blessing that gets flying. And I had that exact type of start in two different games against two different decks. And, uh, and while that was happening... One game it was like, well, I don't know what my opponent's playing. It was like game one, so I'm going to lead on the uh, the Sky Marcher to make sure I get two damage in, right? And the other game it's like, oh, I want to lead on this cat because it's the mirror, and I want to try and draw Johnny's Pride Mate so I can like try and get that going. Right. So a lot of different things that can happen there for sure. And this is the story as old as magic. The more options that there are on a given turn, the more chances there are for you to make a bad decision. Mm-hmm. And you know this deck playing like almost entirely all one drops. Like, you you have that possibility on every turn, right? Like, there are so many different things you can do. Like, even, like, History of Benalia is one of the best cards that you can play. But, like, if you have a turn where you can play History of Benalia, but Benalish Marshal, or three one-drops, like, you have to make a lot of decisions that evaluate the game state and think about how you're going to get across the finish line. And so this is a deck that does, I think, take some time to, to put the reps in to figure out. Yeah, well, at least be aware. So let's talk about green-black next. I mean, this was the boogeyman going into the Pro Tour. This was, like... After week one, people have said this is going to be the de facto best deck. It's the deck to beat. Like, 
Uh, so many things. In my opinion, I think Green Black is just the most consistent deck. It gets that from the Explorer creatures and it's <laughs> Planeswalkers and has a very good job of playing the same game plan over and over and over again. What do you think about Green Black? Yeah, I mean, I think that the Green Black, green black strategy could be described as I'm going to cast my spells. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I think that that is certainly where its focus is. Um, one of the problems I think that's there with the Green Black deck is that it is so customizable. Mm-hmm. And that, like, you could have a perfectly reasonable green-black deck that you have built that would absolutely crush it, but you got the wrong build for the wrong metagame. Like, that you you went the wrong direction. You went too big when you should have gone smaller, or you went, you know, too aggro when you should have gone this. You know, you should have gone Wild Growth Walker and Explore Creatures, and you went, you know, Big Vraska and uh, Golgari Fine Brokers, and you just didn't end up where you were supposed to be. And so I think the fact that it is so toolboxy and it is so customizable makes it a really hard choice because you have to really be in tune with what your meta is going to be in order to do it successfully mm-hmm. most definitely yeah i think um something that's really interesting about the green black decks is that it was definitely that way before the pro tour but since then i've noticed that people are all converging on like wild growth walker and stuff and that's part of that's a reaction to the red white right mm-hmm. like red white's gonna attack you this is one of your best ways to stop it is you build this huge wall you kill some stuff you attack through you gain some life that can never win but I think what we're going to see happening in the next couple of weeks is that people are like, we can build green black any way we want, any way we want. But what if we just built it like the most consistent way possible every time, and just like the most middle of the road? Mm-hmm. And I think we're going to kind of see a convergence of that. And we're seeing that already with Autumn and Matt Nass's green black decks, where while they're doing different things in the early turns, the rest of the game plans are fairly similar until you get to sideboard. So I'm going to be curious to see how that plays out. And I think that those decks are both very well built and mm-hmm. like good choices. Like if you're a person who likes that style of deck. You know, I think that's a reasonable and defensible choice. Like, you know, I think it's a player in the metagame. I think that it can beat these decks. You know, you've just had to lean more towards, like, Frasca's Contempt and some other things in order to interact with Adanto's Vanguard and some of these other cards. Um, but it has the tools to do it. Um, but, you know, in the way that the Rock decks always are, it's just you're all medium all the time. <laughs> like, that's yeah. just kind of where you're at. Yeah, I've played a lot of Matt Nass's deck, and I've played a good bit of Autumn's. And I think they're both good decks and totally reasonable choices. And you can find those pretty easily online if you're looking for a PBTQ deck. Um, let's talk about Mono Red, though. Mono Red's great. Mono Red's great. I don't have a lot to say. Experimental Frenzy is a crazy magic card. We're probably going to see it see more and more play as time goes on in older formats. I mean, it just kind of runs away with the game at various times. Whirly, 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 whirly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I couldn't think of anything clever to say, but I mean, no, Chain Whirler is very good against those red-white decks, right? Oh, yeah. Even if it doesn't kill something, it like at least like pressures them a lot and makes blocking when you're attacking in very hard. And it does go over the top of those decks with Experimental Frenzy. I mean, you see like the red-white decks playing Frenzy in the sideboard as a way to like win. I assume Mirrors as well. I haven't actually seen that happen yet, but I assume it's very good in the Mirror and against Control decks. So... The deck has a lot of potential powerful draws, and while it does like lack a lot of really good sideboard options, it's not like it doesn't have anything. You can still play like Fiery Carinade and stuff on the sideboard to answer these decks if you really want to hate them. So, mm-hmm. and and first, like the the main draw of being able to play mono red versus playing the red white is that you get to play a card like Chain Whirler. Yeah, like you can't play that in red white, and like first strike is a real deal ability. You know, in these kind of uh, low to the ground mirrors. Um, it causes nightmares for, for combat in a lot of situations. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the 3-3 three, three first strike is good enough, and when it's sometimes ETB kills something or make you pay for life is pretty real against red. And especially when it's ETB kill like three things. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he- heaven forbid they have the healer hawk draw. Oh. 
Yeah, I actually had that happen on Arena where I was like, I'm playing against Red, I could double one drop here, or I could just play Pride Mates. I'll just yeah. play Pride Mates. The, only, like, the only thing that I will say on the mono red decks is there seemed to be a consensus that four exper- experimental frenzies was where you want to be. Yeah. I'm not 100% sold on that. I've been sold since the first time I saw the card get played. I'm not kidding. I thought you should. I thought it was silly that people are playing three. Yeah, it's the only card I want to draw on that deck every single time. I mean, you want to play it on four, like basically always, which I get, you know. But it does give you a fail rate. Sure, you know, it, with the card, it increases your fail rate. I'll, I mean, that that's like a given because you have more cards that are dead. On the flip side, when you play Experimental Frenzy, it's so hard to lose. And like, if that card was another random card in your deck, I don't know, like. If that would change it so much compared to drawing Experimental Frenzy. Yeah, I mean, it seemed to be the consensus among yeah. pro players. Uh, you know, it's just always, I, th- I think it's always important to continue to ask these questions. Sure, I think it's fair to ask the question. I think the answer is it's a draw seven. Uh, <laughs> Mono Blue. Mono Blue is a deck that, you know, we saw 10 constructed. Gabriel Nassif got second in a Jeep or top four to GP. Where did he get second? I can't quite remember. Top four for sure. I don't know. I don't know after Okay, that. I can't remember. It's a little late in the night here. Yeah. Um, but like, Mono Blue is a deck that's really performed and really done well. We saw them bring it to the players of the year of the playoff. What do you think about Mono Blue? I, I think that this is the the best deck no one's talking about. Like it, it is overperforming for the amount that it's being played. Mm-hmm. Like I think it is seriously underrepresented in the metagame. Uh I mean, Tenoing a Pro Tour is no joke. Like you have to be a real deck. That's not just like, oh, he's a good player and everything. Everybody's a good player. Like you have to be a real deal deck in order to do that. And I think that this is a real deal deck. And in a similar way as these red decks or the white decks or anything else, it's consistent. It does the same thing basically every game. You get to cast all your spells. You have no mana issues, no mana problems. Like, you know, you just get to do the thing you do. Um, but the benefit with this as well is one of the things you do is draw cards. And you draw a bunch of them. Yeah. Like, you play an unblockable thing, you give it draw a card every time it attacks curious obsession yeah and it's just like you just get to do that for the rest of the game and you don't have to mess around with four mana enchantments or anything else you get to play counter spells on those turns and leave up your mana and you can interact in a lot of ways and you know tempest to Jin does a pretty good drake impersonation i mean like it's pretty big pretty yeah. quickly yeah for sure i think the mono blue deck is very good i think a lot like we talked about red white uh, you get to think about what you're going to do, and I think that's where it loses a lot of points. And so, like, when people, like, specifically PPTQ players, right, because that's what we're talking to and we're talking about, a lot of times they, like, dismiss these kind of decks. Like, oh, these are, like, I mean, the deck was called Mono Blue Shitters, right? Like, that's what people called the deck before coverage got their hands on it. Right. So, like, it kind of has a negative connotation to it. Yeah. But it's a deck that, like, rewards tight play and punishes sloppy play. Right. And those are the kind of decks that you go something that's really good and you have a big skill gap on the field. Like, if, if you think, if you I know, know you're better than your field or whatever, well, you should think that, this might be a good way to test it. It's like, hey, can I win with this deck? Because the better players keep winning with this deck. And it is a deck that does have a fail rate, but it's very good, I think. Yeah, what they should really be calling it is Mono Blue Delver, because it's essentially <laughs> the, the way that it operates. It does play a Delver game. Yeah. It plays it pretty well, too. Yeah. Yeah, that deck, that deck, the deck that definitely was lower on, and the more I've played against it, the more respect I've given it. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's weird to be excited about a deck that's like, I'm going to play Warkite Marauder. You're like, okay. Yeah. But you're like, yeah, that card does stuff. <laughs> yeah. I- I'm super happy just to play uh, Merfolk Trickster. Yeah, uh, that is one of the most uh, appropriately named cards in all of Magic history. Because mm-hmm. it is a very tricky card. 
and you can continually find new ways. That's one of the things that's fun about playing that card. You can find new ways in-game to like get value out of that card. Like, in the moment, you're like, oh, I can upkeep this. I can do, hold on, I'm going to yeah. do a thing. They're going to lose flying in combat, and I'm going to get to kill their thing that I couldn't do, you know, or like, oh, they're trying to, oh, wait, hold on. I can yeah. trickster, like... It's a very fun card to play with because, like, the amount of times that you can, like, see lines in real time that, like, you never bothered to think about because you weren't thinking about Merfolk Trickster a lot in general. Yeah, for sure. All right, let's talk about Jeskai Control. So Jeskai Control is a deck that has done pretty well. I put a deck, I put a top eight in the Pro Tour. It won a GP. It's been doing pretty well. I, does the PT top eight list play Azor's Gateway? I don't quite remember. It'll be into the artifact section. Does not? I do not believe so, no. So, I kind of like the move away from that. I think before it was like a nice little gotcha thing. We saw it do pretty well on online PTQ as well. Basically, Azor's Gateway, if you don't know, is it's like a looter and you put cards under it and you have five different CMCs that flipped into a land that gained you five life and you could tap it to gain mana of any color equal to your life. So, you would just kind of live and then flip it, then expansion, explosion, expansion, explosion, they're dead. It's pretty easy to win when you draw seven cards. Probably find another one and then draw like 13 cards. So... I thought that was like a pretty good thing before, but I like becoming more clean and being able to answer all these aggressive decks because it does make sense that this deck is pretty good right now. I think the problem is, is all the other decks are aware of it. All the other decks are aware of it, and it's the same thing when you you're, have a hyper-aggressive metagame and then you're playing a control deck. It's like we talked about in our modern episode, right? Like with this, you're, you're sweating sweepers a lot of the times playing this deck. And, you know, a, a lot of the matches that I saw on coverage with Jeskai Control, I mean, they were skin-of-the-teeth games. Like, you're, you're dropping down to two, three health, one life, and, you know, and then turning the game around with a deafening Clarion gaining life or doing something else. Like, but there's a lot of sweat uh, playing this type of deck. But it has the tools. I mean, the cards are very powerful. Teferi's still very powerful. Niv-Mizzet is very powerful. You have access to the best sweepers overall. You get to play deafening Clarion. You get to play um, Cleansing Nova. Um, which I'll, when these white decks are around and they're playing History of Banalias, and then they're also using Conclave Tribunals for removal, like Cleansing Nova. Can and sometimes gain, be extra. Yeah, gain, gain some value. Um, so I think that those things are real things. And uh, Syncopate is still a great way to try to deal with Adanto's Vanguard and, and some of these other difficult cards. Yeah, for sure. I think you also get to adapt to the week too, right? Like you just saw Red White do really well. So before you played a lot of Clarions, right? And a lot of Cleansing Novas, like maybe six total, right? But now you like cut one from each and you play some Settles. And you're like, okay, now I can answer these Vanguards another way. So yeah. it really lets you customize it. And an interesting thing that I see happen at PPDQs is I see that people, and at least locally, they really gravitate towards these control decks almost as a way to like, beat people i I don't know if it's like they feel like they're smarter or they feel like people play worse or whatever but i will say people do definitely play worse against these cards of not experience playing against them right but once you get it down you kind of know it uh but i would say that like these are like the easy decks to play like that's that's the trick is that control decks are the easy ones at these levels yeah you just play the best answer for whatever it is that they're doing on the turn that they're doing it yeah and you know and when they don't do a thing that you need to worry about you play the card that draws cards <laughs> and yeah. it's like and then you draw more answers um i do think that one of the keys to this this deck competing uh right now has been the reemergence of seal away mm-hmm. um i think has been strong uh, it's a good thing i mean it's created some weird things where they conclave tribunal your seal away and then we saw that happen in the top eight um but i do think that a move back towards uh you know subtle in some capacity is also going to be important going forward Mm-hmm. Um, the decks have generally gone away from that, and I think that that will have to change to a certain extent with, with things shaping up the way that they have. For sure, yeah. 
I don't know. I think if you're unsure about what to play and you don't want to play like the red white deck because you have a target on your back, this this or green block makes the most sense to me since this is just kind of like the easy mode deck. Protect protect yourself to get to a Teferi, take up a Teferi and figure out a way from there. It's right. pretty easy. And if you really want the opportunity to over sideboard, boy, does Jeskai Control give you that opportunity. <laughs> oh boy. You can have the fiery cannonades, the star of extinctions, the settle the wreckages, the cleansing novas, the deafening clarions. You could have you could have all the sweepers you could ever dream of. Yep. And then just died a little Danto boy. <laughs> All right. So going into the last deck here, Lich's Mastery. Which someone did play at the Pro Tour. Zach Elsick. Zach Elsick did play at the Pro Tour and uh, won some games. You know? So I, I think the deck. So I will say this. I read Jay Dean and Autumn's article before we, we made this deck. I'm sorry. I, I made this, this uh, list of decks to talk about before we uh, read that article. And that was the deck they did talk about because Zach Elsick said it was good. They kind of had some poor interactions against Drake where they got their Lich's Mastery to Sandful Stroke and they were off it. Right. Uh, but, you know, if that's like, if you try to play like the crazy brewery decks, I think the deck's pretty defensible right now. If you put four Momenter Cravings main deck, that beats Adantos and that's a draw two with your Lich's Mastery. So I would say that that's like the fun deck I would support. Like, you know, just put those four Momenter Craving guns, take out some of the other cards and... You'll be fine. I, I agree completely. And it's one of those decks that, like, I know I was flippant, you know, about it. But it's a deck that's easy to joke about. Yeah. But then when you watch it take infinite turns and survive a lot of things that it shouldn't. Like, I mean, it does win games. I mean, you know, you're going to have things where you're just like, I can't beat a Cleansing Nova. Like, if they have a Cleansing Nova, I just lose. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's the way it goes. Yeah, if you feel like your local metagame really hates control but really loves aggro decks, I think the four of Wrath of the Contempt, four Moment of Craving... Three of this card that says you take extra damage before you die and you draw cards when you gain life. Yeah. And the four revitalizes main deck and the four gift of paradise yeah. might be a strategy to win. Just saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. If you're looking for a rogue way to go, there, it's it's a much better deck than than the sum of its parts. For sure. Like it really does do some crazy things. And when you're doing things like drawing like you know ten extra cards a turn and then taking infinite turns, I mean, like it's insanely powerful. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, if you stick with Lich's Mastery and Gale for Revitalize, it's normally pretty hard to lose from that point. They'll draw four. All right, well, Trey, what are we going to try and why now? Going into this thing, now, obviously you and I don't have any PPDQs to go play, but what would we be trying? What are we going to play just to, like, learn from? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'm curious to, to play some more of these decks. Like, I haven't really played any control in this format. Like, mm -hmm. I've, been, I've been playing proactively been playing a lot of drake i played white decks i mean that's what i was doing and trying to win the pptq and if i were playing this weekend still in a pptq playing playing drake is probably what i would still be doing like mm -hmm. you know i like the deck it's what i want to be doing and i think it's a very good choice and it's a style that i like but as far as what i'm going to be trying right now i'm probably going to be trying some control seeing seeing if there are effective ways and and what is the list that attacks the metagame effectively um because that's just a muscle I want to continue to flex, and that's not a thing that I've really done in this standard environment. Mm -hmm. That's fair. Um, I would probably keep trying out Matt Nass's Green Black deck. I like Autumn and Matt Nass's, but I lean a little bit more towards Matt Nass's. I don't like Elves in the Green Black deck like at all, so I'd try to play his deck without them if possible, but I think it just gives you too much game against the other decks that are good right now that you kind of have to play it, so I'd want to try testing without that. And I just love the Blood Operative sideboard package against Control and a lot of other stuff. It's it's a very clean answer to a lot of things, and it's very powerful with Doom Whisper, which would normally be a card that's kind of mopey against them. This kind of dies on the spot, but with the Blood Operative package, really gives you some extra momentum. So 
Yeah, I, I think that that's a great choice, and I, I think that's a really interesting deck as well. And, you know, if you're off of Elves, you're not certainly not going to play the Elves and Druid of the Cow uh, from the Kai Buddha list. Definitely not. I Also, along that lines, I do want to try Seth Mansfield's green-white deck. Spencer uh, messaged me a list that was like an updated version. I don't know if it was like... Because Seth's officially now the host uh, of Constructed Criticism. I think Spencer was actually just calling. I think they just finished recording it or something. But, uh, yeah. So, I don't know if that's like an updated list or that's Spencer's take on it. But I saw a pretty cool one. And it seems like it's a good middle ground between like uh, green, black, and white. Right. Where you kind of like get to walk the line between them i wonder if that's an interesting way to attack stuff right so one thing that i do want to say as well on the decks and it's one that we didn't talk about is that selesnia tokens was a deck that was also heavily played at the pro tour Mm -hmm. that i was not impressed with yeah um i i think that it was just not not the right way to go with these white decks and i think that the other white decks are certainly a much better place to be even though you play a lot of the same cards um, but Seth's deck is interesting because it was built in a, in a different fashion. It wasn't necessarily go wide. It was more of a Planeswalker deck, bigger, mid-rangey. It was like, to be green-black. It was a green-white, green-black deck. Yeah. Is, is, is a good way to try <laughs> to think about it. Um, and that's interesting to me. But the the like, the like token go-wide Selesnia decks, I think, were, were losers uh, you know, at this Pro Tour. Yeah. I wonder if they're good against red-white. I don't know. I wonder if that was like the reason you play it. Yeah. Because I mean, call it like uh, or con- what's it? Conclave Tribunal? No, no, no. No, call Mar- March of the Multitudes. March of the Multitudes. Yeah. I don't know what I was thinking of. Uh, that card's very good against red. Right. Red which white. Is the instant speed make a bunch of one one life links. Yes, the Sphinx is <laughs> rev. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Uh, but yeah. So I mean, I don't know. I'm curious about that one. That's a deck that's always been kind of good, but like I'm not really impressed by. But it's it's kind of like oh, okay, that deck's fine. That's yeah. kind of my my spot on that deck. So. It can definitely win PBDQs. We see it happen all the time. So. Yeah, yeah, it does. But that was that was the one that was the one deck that was heavily played that I was just continually not impressed with every time it was on camera. Yeah, like for it, sure. it just seemed like it was underpowered in comparison to the other things that were going on. All right, well, that's gonna do it for our standard talk. If you want to find Trey, Trey, where can they find you? You can find me on Twitter at TreyMC. You can find me on Facebook at Trey McLarnan, and you can find me on Instagram at TreyMC. Uh, and you can always check out my film stuff at bestpartproductions.com. Love it. If you want to find me, you can find me over at twitch.tv slash Clark. You can find me on Twitter at Mason E. Clark. You can find me on Facebook at Mason Clark. And that's it when it comes to that kind of stuff. Make sure to check out the other shows on the network. We've been talking about it a lot, but you know that's just how these things kind of go sometimes. At the time this is up, the CC, Constructive Criticism, should have its first episode with Seth Manfield. John Stern is the official full-time co-host now, and I'm sure it's great. Those guys are great. I know Spencer was very excited uh, about the Patreon-only episode they did uh, with each of them talking about their testing. They did, an, in case you didn't know, uh, Trey, they did individual episodes because of team testing. Mm-hmm. And so they kind of got to hear both sides of it before the PT happened. Oh, that's great. So if you're a Patreon of the Constructive Criticism, you get to hear that, which is pretty exciting. Uh, make sure to also check out Common Knowledge. They're a popper podcast. You can now get to the Pro Tour playing popper as of yesterday. Ooh. So don't know why you're not listening to that. It's obvious. My oubliettes are very happy. You know those are getting reprinted, right? Never. All right. Uh, and so... <laughs> it's a room where you stay isolated. For... <laughs> <laughs> and, oh, I see. You're just going to oubliette yourself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then don't forget to check out Homeward Path. It's on its way home. Talk about a lot of different things with magic. It's pretty awesome. So that's going to do it for this week's episode. So at this Pro Tour... Um, people showed up who had just recently achieved platinum status to find out that they were not getting platinum player reward cards. Which, if you're not familiar with this, if you hit the highest pro status that you can hit, other than the Hall of Fame, 
you got a card that said you were a Platinum Pro and it had your picture on it. And this was a thing that could be used to promote yourself and also promote the game of Magic. And uh, Wizards decided to do away with those this year with no fanfare announcement or anything else. They just showed up to find out that they're not going to get them. I think you know what's coming. Wow. Okay. Isn't the number one thing that you've been criticized for for like the last five years is not providing benefits to the player base, not supporting the pros, not turning your people into personalities that can be promoted and exploited and used for the promotion not only of themselves but of your game. Isn't this the reason that there have been continual fights between you and Star City over viewership and how to handle all of these things? Didn't you just have one of your best players protest worlds over practically this same issue? How can you not figure this out at this point? It's also like, maybe you should just go ahead and do the smallest thing that you do, which is you are a company that prints cards. All you had to do was print a card. It's the only thing you do. It's like Waffle House decided that they were going to get out of the waffle game and just sell houses. Wow. Okay. Roll with us next time.